The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to come back. So here's what we've done this weekend. We're, we're doing a full circle thing. We started in Ecclesiastes, and I left it hanging. We left it hanging yesterday morning with, okay, here it comes down to these two things, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the summary. So the overarching theme of the weekend, going back to Aaron Small on Friday night, sharing his story, which is phenomenal, phenomenal, goodness. Thank God for people that are engaging that level of society. I'm so thankful for that. And that many of you said in Zach's breakout yesterday, we talked about domain engagement, using the workplace, things like that. So go back to Friday night when, when Smalley was up here talking about uh, his story. And right through the weekend, what we've seen is, and what we've tried to put in front of you in the breakout sessions and the main sessions, is this idea of manhood being redeemed or value brought out of brokenness. Whatever your situation is, whatever you come from, that there's redeeming quality and characteristic that God has in that. So we come back around to Ecclesiastes, having looked at Adam's fall and, and the effect of that fall on us, and, and then Christ as the second Adam who we can be represented by Jesus rather than Christ. That's where redemption begins. Now what we're going to do is we're going to come back to that end of Ecclesiastes and we'll look at four observations this morning that we can take away from what the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, as he's called, what he's going to say to us. If we can get these four realities sort of in our brain, then we will live life effectively. We'll live life effectively. And what we all want to do as men is live life effectively, in a way that honors God, in a way that helps others. A way that honors God in a way that helps others. And so we go to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let's start in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So I want to begin by looking at Four things the preacher in Ecclesiastes wants us to take away from the study of the book. And these are four things I think would be real helpful if we take away from the weekend. And here's what, he's, here's what he's given us. An understanding of these four things. If you and I can, can have an understanding of these four things in our lives, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to make life better. It's going to enrich life. It's going to help us enrich the lives of others. And so before we dive into these, by the way, I want to point you to a book I've used in preparation for the weekend. We, they gave these out at the Gospel Coalition or together for the gospel last year. It's called Living Life Backwards. Living Life Backwards by a guy named David Gibson. He's Scottish pastor. So when I read it, I read it in a Scottish accent. Um, it was awesome. Uh, Living Life Backward, a really cool look at the book of Ecclesiastes, super helpful. Um, in fact, we're going, through, we're going to take our youth group through that at our church. 
But so, so the, the four things that we need an understanding of and that the writer of Ecclesiastes is, is winding this thing down and giving us an understanding of, the first one is this, an understanding of pleasure. An understanding of pleasure. We need a biblical, Godward understanding of pleasure. Pleasure is a huge part of the human experience. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen a, a person who has severe special needs or an elderly person uh, who is nearing death or a person who is terminally ill who is nearing death, but the pleasure of taste oftentimes is kind of one of the last things they're hanging on to. I can remember my father, my, my um, grandfather, who was very much like a father to me in many ways when I was growing up, my mom's dad. Uh, I remember when he was, when he was passing, about, this was about five or six years ago, and they had called hospice in, and I went to sit with him, and we're hanging out. We're just up the road here at a nursing home. We're hanging out, and, uh, and I remember he asked for biscuits and gravy from Hardee's and a strawberry milkshake. And he had, he had pretty much lost his mind. It was in that last, I mean, literally, he's in the last 24 hours of life. And, and I thought, isn't that interesting? There's something about the pleasure of taste right now. Because God created us for pleasure. And I think the taste buds are a good example of how creative God is in giving us a taste for pleasure. But it's also a good example of how Satan wants to take something God's given us for good and ruin it whether it's through gluttony or alcoholism or whatever, but the idea of taste and cravings and pleasure, something that's very real to us. And, and a godly man who is understanding God's purpose for him and for his life needs to have a biblical Godward understanding of pleasure. God has given us pleasure so that we might worship him better and love others more. But what most people are going to do is they're going to, and and we're all guilty of this, what all people are going to do is they're going to make pleasure the end goal at different times in life. That's what we all do. When I fall into disobedience, when I fall into sin, when I yield to the flesh, typically I'm giving in to earthly or fleshly cravings and I'm feeding pleasure that's only momentary in its fulfillment. And typically, it's followed by shame and guilt and frustration and discouragement. So if we can understand biblically the role that pleasure plays in our lives, then we're going to be much more faithful in what God's called us to as men. In verse 10, he says, the preacher sought to find words of delight. That word delight carries with it the idea of pleasure. The preacher sought to find then words of pleasure. How did he seek these words? Through God's word. God's word is meant to bring us delight. He intends to fulfill us. He intends to give us pleasure and for that pleasure to be deeply satisfying, not only in the moment, but with depth for our souls. God's word is meant to bring us wisdom and joy in that wisdom. Living with wisdom and understanding will bring pleasure in life. As men, we need wisdom to lead. We need wisdom to work. And we need wisdom to serve. And when we get this right, we will find joy and pleasure. Pleasure in food. Pleasure in fellowship. Pleasure in the simple observation of nature. 
I leave tomorrow morning from the Atlanta airport at 10.51 to fly to Jackson Hole, Wyoming to get in a rental truck and drive to the end of a backcountry forest service road and park and walk into the Shoshone National Forest with my bow and a quiver full of arrows and seven days worth of supplies. And I'm going to do everything in my power to do two things, kill a bull elk and not get eaten by a grizzly bear. And I really want to kill that bull elk. (laughs) They're going to be bugling, and it is intense, and it is obnoxious, and it is 30 degrees cooler out there than it is right here, praise Jesus. And it's going to be awesome. But you know what I I know is going to happen? It's going to take about 72 hours of sitting on those ridgetops, glassing those meadows, just breathing it, tasting it, soaking it in. God intends for us to take pleasure in creation. Hopefully he doesn't intend for me to get eaten by a grizzly bear. I will have a pistol and a holster of bear spray. I believe God is sovereign, and he's also given us the mind and will to fight. Amen? (laughs) Somebody said, when a grizzly bear attacks you, you play dead. I watched The Revenant. I know that does not go good for you. (laughs) Scratch, claw, shoot, spray, bite, like go out like a man. I'm not going to roll up like a little dog and get killed by a bear. Come on now. If y'all hear about it and they they find my body out there, it better be chewed up. It better be chewed up. One dude told, one guy said, yeah, if you get attacked by a grizzly bear, play dead. It'll be good practice for what's going to happen in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, we need to learn how to take pleasure in friendship. Pleasure in friendship. Relationships matter. God built us for community. He built us for companionship. Not lastly, Friendship, and then lastly, solitude. So it's critical, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about this, that we understand the value of community and friendship and fellowship and that we understand the value of solitude. Solitude. Being alone with God. Being alone with God should give value to the friendship and fellowship of godly uh, relationships. And so we need to understand pleasure. The next thing in verse 11 is that uh, the man of God needs to have a biblical understanding of pain. As you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hevel. There's a lot of smoke. He says in verse 11, he uses the words goads and nails firmly fixed. It's the idea that God's word and sometimes God's will are poking and prodding and driving at you. Pain is a reality and death will be the final pain we endure. The word of God helps us understand that death is not final for us, neither is pain. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that death no longer has a sting. But pain is a reality we all face. Everyone will die, and for most of us, there will be pain associated with this. There will be pain along the way in our physical bodies. Amen? Knees cracking, hips hurting, backs wore out. Pain is real, man. You young fellas that are in your 20s and teens, like soak it up, but take care of that body if you can. He, at one point, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. 
I feel like he's saying, when your back don't hurt and your knees are solid, you know, like remember, remember then. There's pain in our physical bodies, but we're also going to experience pain in relationships. Man of God is going to have a, an understanding, though he may not fully understand, he's going to understand the pain of relationship. Like when, when I go through pain in relationship, when you go through pain in relationship, what God promises us is that as he navigates that with us, that we're going to be able to get through that. that like the, the brokenness of a marriage that ends. The abandonment by a child that you did everything in your power to raise and love and care about who goes off the rails as an adult. The pain of uh, like the stress of relationships at work you got to go into that stressful environment every day because it's not easy. Somebody gets passed over you for an advancement. Like, like relationship pain is constant. God, I believe, oftentimes puts somebody in your life that will absolutely drive you crazy as part of your sanctification process. And if you don't have that person in your life, <laughs> someone else is being sanctified. <laughs> The answer to dealing with pain in our lives in light of God's word is this. Do not try to domesticate your Bible. In other words, God's word is given to us and it is raw and it is real and it is powerful and it is not candy coated. And there are graphic things going on when you read scripture. And there are things that, be, that are oftentimes beyond your understanding. And oftentimes when I'm talking to an unbeliever or a young believer, they'll say, well, then why does this happen? Or why does God say this? Or explain to me why the Bible says this. Or people will take God's word and try to make it mean something that fits nicely into a box that works the way they want it to work in their life. You can't domesticate the word of God. It is a double-edged sword. It is a roaring lion. It is an animal unlike anything we've ever seen that has been unleashed. And it's going to run its course in your life. So we want to submit to it. And ask God to give us understanding into it, and he will. James chapter 1 says, says, if any of us needs wisdom or desires wisdom, if we ask of God, he'll give that wisdom to us willingly and without reproach. And so we get to have an understanding that comes through the promises of Scripture. So we want to live in light of the promises of Scripture so that when the day of pain comes, that we're ready for that because we're going to have to endure it. Number three, we get an understanding of perspective, perspective, the perspective that we're to live our lives under or with is there in verse 13 that we talked about yesterday morning. That is the perspective for how to, how to live life in light of the, the hevel, the meaninglessness, the vanity, the smoke, the absurdity, the insanity, the things that don't make sense. How do you live with perspective? And he says, you fear God and you keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. So we fear God and we love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we love others more than we love ourselves. Here's that definition I was going to give you from Charles Bridges on the fear of the Lord. Charles Bridges says, the fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. I'll read it again. It's that affectionate reverence. I like the use of those words. It's affectionate, but it's reverent. By which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. So we obey the Lord obediently and reverently, but we do so out of affection and love for him. 
Listen to what Philip Ryken says in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read from it concerning the fear of God. To fear God is to honor and revere him as God. This is not the first time that Ecclesiastes has told us to do this. The preacher has told us to fear God because he demands holy worship. In chapter 5, verse 7, he has said that we should fear God in, time, in times of adversity as well as prosperity in chapter 7. In chapter 8, he says if we do fear God, we, it will go well with us. Here's how Michael Eaton summarizes the preacher's perspective on the fear of God. It is not only the beginning of wisdom, it is also the beginning of joy, of contentment, and of an energetic and purposeful life. The preacher wishes to deliver us from a rosy-colored, self-confident, godless life with its inevitable cynicism and bitterness and from trusting in wisdom, pleasure, wealth, and human justice or integrity. He wishes to drive us to see that God is there, that he is good, that he is generous, and that only such an outlook makes life coherent and fulfilling. At the end of Ecclesiastes, we are told to fear God because one day we will fall into his hands for judgment. Whether we are ready to come before God now or to or hope to avoid him, the truth is that one day every one of us will stand before God for judgment. One day, God will expose every secret sin and uncover every anonymous kindness. He will bring every last deed to judgment, whether it is good or evil, including every casual thought and every careless word, Matthew twelve thirty six. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. That's enough to make me fear God. I want to give an account. Everything I do, everything I think, every act of kindness, I want to give an account. And so the, the perspective that I have is to fear God and love God. So I fear God and then I love him with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I love others more than I love myself. That is the perspective of Ecclesiastes. How, what, what can I do? No ma- Here's what I can do, men. No matter what the circumstances dictate, no matter how difficult life is, I can fear the Lord that way, and then I can love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I can always love and serve other people. No matter what, in the worst circumstances, I can love and care about and serve other people. And the fourth thing that we understand from studying the book of Ecclesiastes that brings about this idea of redemption for us as men, is this. We understand preparation. Preparation. We know that this life is not the end. We know that this season is not even the end of this life for most of us. Preparation. In verse 14, he says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. One of the hardest things to understand sometimes is the injustice of life. But I need to understand that God is going to make all things right, all things new one day. And I need to understand that I will give an account to God for everything I say, think, and do. This should be sobering. Now, fear the Lord as a perspective, but also as preparedness in light of, I'm going to stand before God one day. And here's what that final judgment means. As I prepare for the end to come, like every day of my life is preparation for facing God. And here's what that final judgment means. For me personally, it means I'm going to give an account for everything. So I need to prepare for that. Romans 8.1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I praise the Lord for that. But I'm going to give an account for how I father, how I husband, how I work, how I care about people that work for me how I lead, how I submit to authority. I'm going to give an account for how I spend my money. I'm going to give an account. 
But then also I can take hope in knowing that God is going to call into account every injustice. So throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, this idea of injustice keeps getting brought up. God's going to call into account every injustice. He's going to judge every child molester. He's going to judge every racist. He's going to judge them. You understand what I'm saying? Not, oh, he's going to be gracious. No, he will not be gracious. Those who are not under the blood of Jesus will face judgment under the wrath of God who will condemn them to hell where they will burn eternally in torment over their sin. That's a reality. Like, injustice will be no more and it will be literally like brought, everything will be brought right. Everything will be put right. That's a reality. Just think about. Shared a story this past summer with young people about a girl named Tara. I don't think that was her real name. She was in some sort of a protection plan with the FBI. She was a key witness. She came here as a 16-year-old. She was a key witness in a sex trafficking uh, ring out of Atlanta. And she came here with a counselor who was her personal handler. And she was in full-time care and custody. Uh, she had to be escorted here by her particular FBI agent who was a really large man who looked like he could take care of himself. I remember thinking, he don't look like the FBI guys in the movies. <laughs> that guy's legit. And so she was able to be brought here. It was cool. It was because her counselor was a former SWO employee who had spent her college summers in her undergrad years working here. Now, this was about 10 years ago, about eight years ago. So this, this young lady comes. Her name was Tara. When Tara was 10, her mother started to, to, to sort of prostitute her out. When she was 11, her mother's pimp started to prostitute her out. She would get off the bus, and he would, he would turn tricks with her from about 3.30 till about 11.30. There were days where five to seven grown men, lawyers, doctors, pastors, businessmen, would sleep with this 12, 13, 14-year-old girl in a cheap hotel there right outside of the projects where she lived. She told Little and I that she estimates she had been in bed sexually active with over 1,000 grown men from the time she was 11 until she was 14 and a half or 15. Now, I don't have a category for that in my head. I don't have a category for that in my conscience. And I remember praying with this girl and praying for this girl and trusting the Lord to, to save her and give her freedom from this. Because one of the things that happens when a kid goes through that or when a, when a young person goes through that is there's a, there's a cognitive arrest, an arrested development, where they sort of freeze in that experience. But then in a really distorted, vivid picture of what sin does to a person, they, they, it, it sort of turns into their identity to where she would share with us that she actually began to look forward to that and long for those encounters because it gave her value. Very distorted. Very distorted. Oftentimes when a young woman is rescued out of the sex trade industry, as soon as she has opportunity, she will willingly go back into it because all she knows, it becomes what she's comfortable with. Well, I don't have a category for that. And that's one of those deals in ministry where I scratch my head and I say, God, what in the world is going on? And like, she was 11. If you've not come to a point in your life where you've questioned God, where you've wrestled with God, where you've been angry with God, 
Well, I mean, I don't know that most of us probably haven't been there. I've been there. Maybe it's in the season of loss. Maybe it's in the middle of your own calamity. Maybe it's in the bad news from a doctor. But you've not felt the weight of living in this broken and fallen world heavy enough if if you've not come to a place where you've wrestled with God. What are you doing, God? Why is this happening? Why did this kid endure this for five years? Praise God, she prayed to receive Christ that week at camp. She became a Christian, a child of God. It was incredible. And it was, it was a long path and journey when she left here. Those of you that were here in the spring, there was a guy that I, I had to leave after I preached on Sunday night of Be Strong in the spring. I had to drive through the night. Zach and I and Little had to drive down to uh, uh, north central Florida. I had to preach the funeral of a man on, on that Sunday who had committed suicide at age 58, one of the most enjoyable guys I ever spent time with. But he had been sexually abused severely from age 7 or 8 till about age 14 by an uncle. And at age 58, he was finally tired of trying to figure it all out, so he took his own life. Something that happened when he was 10 years old killed him when he was 58. How do you make sense of that? No doubt there's many men in this room that were sexually abused as kids. It's an epidemic in humanity. How do we make sense? I'll tell you how we make sense of it. There is coming a day where there will be no more sin, there will be no more sorrow, There will be no more sickness. There will be no more hardship. And we will dwell in a land where there is no sun because the radiant glory of God brightens the day and the night never comes. Where children are not molested, women are not trafficked, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people are not judged for not being Caucasian. There's coming a day where wives are not abused and husbands are not abandoned. There's coming a day where children are not beaten. There's coming a day where there's no drug trade, where there's no gang violence, where there's no crooked politicians. Praise Jesus. There's coming a day where we don't need a Supreme Court because we'll be with the one who has judged rightly for once and for all. And all things will be made right. And I'll give an account for me, not you. And every one of us will give an account for ourselves. And God will graciously, having removed condemnation, bring us into an eternal place where we'll live and dwell with him. And I can't even wrap my brain around what that's going to be like. But manhood will finally and eternally be redeemed. That's going to be awesome, man. It's going to be awesome. What the preacher is saying at the end of this crazy book is, hey, the hevel is going to clear and we'll no longer chase the wind. We'll take hold of the horns of the eternal altar, something substantial. We'll worship God forever. Paul's words in Philippians give us the true north of life when we live as men. To put all things into perspective, we remember this. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, the text that I preached at Mike Stanley's funeral last March. For I consider the sufferings of this present life not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in Christ Jesus. 
There's a glory that awaits us that's going to be worth it all. It's going to be worth it all. I'll give you a quote from a guy named Nick. wealth and funded the the working and the equipping and the training and the sending of several hundred missionaries I want to say there was a bunch of missionaries he personally embraced like he took his wealth and he said I'm going to I'm going to make eternal investment with this and he and he created a place where men and women would come live and train and prepare to go to the mission field and then he would send them and he would support and fund that that mission work and they would go to unreached unengaged people and, and, and there's not much known about him, but there's one quote that he's known for. And that quote sums up, I think, why there's not much known about him. And the quote is this, preach the gospel, period, die, period, and be forgotten, period. The summary of Ecclesiastes might be this, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Nobody's going to know who you were 75 years from now. That's sobering. That's sobering. I had one picture of my great-grandfather and his dad together. I met my great-grandfather and knew him. He died when I was a young man, but I didn't know him well. I was like 10 years old. I never knew my great-great-grandfather. I had one picture of them standing on the front porch of their house not far from here, somewhere in the 1920s. And I look at that, look at that picture. I look at it, and I try to think, what were these men like? This is my bloodline. These are, these are the men, these are the mountain men that I like came from. I don't know anything about them. Stories about bootleg and moonshine. I don't know anything about them. And then, and then my cabin burned down and that picture burned up. The one picture I had. And I thought, well, that's really a good visual of what, what life is like. But if we preach the gospel... And then we're forgotten, the legacy of the gospel will continue. Because the next generation has got to live in the same world that we're living in right now, but it'll be worse. Because the downward spiral of society is very evident. And our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids got to make it in this world. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten with these four realities that the writer of Ecclesiastes has given. I'll pray, and we'll close with a couple songs together. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it does not return void in our lives and in creation. And I pray that uh, as we go from this weekend, that these men, these brothers, would, would be refreshed and encouraged and equipped with the reality that life is short and we can make the most of it by surrendering our lives to Jesus and living in the preparedness that you promise. Through your word, the wisdom that comes from your spirit, I pray that we'd be better husbands, better daddies. I pray that we'd be better men. And that we would be those who reflect the re redemption of what Christ has done to restore what Adam broke and we broke 
along with Adam. We love you and we worship you right now through these last two songs because you're worthy of worship and praise. And so we want to sing truth to you in response to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.